Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome to the fifth episode of Engendered Reflections. We welcome our guest again, Michael. Hello, Terry. How are you? I'm good, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me back. So today we're going to be looking back on episodes 25, 26, 27, and 28, all episodes that dealt with either institutional sexism, institutional misogyny, institutional harassment, or institutional child abuse. Right. And so starting with the first episode, episode 25, we spoke with the Brock Turner for Prison Facebook group founders on rape culture and Me Too. What did you think of that episode, Michael? It was one of the most fascinating episodes. Interesting to have two guests there at the same time. It was very fun to listen to. So I did appreciate it, despite the subject matter being so serious and so impactful. I did want to listen to it more. Well, one of the things I think we started off with in that conversation that was illuminating for me in particular was how high the rates of violence against women are in the Native American community compared to the regular population. And I was unaware that the reason for this is because Native American women who've been raped or sexually assaulted through tribal law, they're not, and through a Supreme Court case, in 1978, they don't actually have the jurisdiction to punish non-Native Americans. And this wasn't addressed until 2013 through an amendment to the Violence Against Women Act called the Special Domestic Violence Criminal Jurisdiction Statute. Right. Um, That was shocking to me, too. Yeah. And I did some reading after the conversation that we had, Mm -hmm. and apparently... I don't know if you know this, but since that act was passed in 2013, only 13 of the 562 federally recognized tribes in the U.S. have voluntarily become compliant with the federal regulations. And one of the reasons that there's so few Mm -hmm. is apparently because the adoption of those federal regulations in some ways might hamper the due process of the Native Americans. So, for example, the act itself enabled mm-hmm. Native Americans to prosecute non-Native right. offenders. Right, abuse. But to make it happen, the tribal communities, for example, had to get a jury that was non-Native American so that the person who was being tried... Would supposedly be tried fairly. Yep, with a jury, jury of, of his or her peers. Yep, and that was something that was very hard to get agreement and consensus on. Right. Another area that was a big impediment was the fact that providing court-appointed counsel to defendants who could not afford it had to be done at the tribe's expense, which is a major challenge for tribes with little money. Of course. So the tribe would have to pay for the counsel because that's something that's required. Yeah. So the VAWA reauthorization didn't cover that. Yikes. So the idea is that if tribes can show through VAWA that they do have a fair court system and non-Indian defendants can get fair trials in tribal court, the hope is that one day tribes can prosecute any non-Indian defendant that commits a crime on Indian 
soil. But the problem is the reauthorization of that VAWA appropriation didn't have the funding to actually make it possible for these due process procedural elements to be included and to make it possible for there to be a justice for sexual assault or rape survivors. So there are these systemic challenges still that even though they were Mm well-intentioned, they're still prohibiting survivors to get justice and to get the remedy through the court system, through the criminal justice court system that they really need and should have. Just because the law was passed, it's not like all of a sudden, magically, things are going to change. I think earlier in the podcast, in that episode, we were talking about how things have been changing and, and there's things that are placed in the law, but they're, they're not being, the biases are, are still affecting the decision making of the judges. That, that You mean Judge on. Persky and his, and his characterization of how Brock Turner and Brock Turner's father's letter right. to the court Characterize Brock essentially as like a victim. Right. As in he's going to be affected in a negative way because of something like this. One of the things that they mentioned was that this was a unique case in the fact that at least he did see some time that he was affected negatively by this. Yeah. And, you know, out of every 1,000 rapes, 995 perpetrators will walk free and only 4.6 rapists will be incarcerated. That's, you know, one of the problems. Mm -hmm. The conditions have to be just right in order for justice to take effect. 230 of them are reported to police. So there's a huge problem in terms of the survivor of the victim of sexual assault and rape, even feeling confident that the criminal justice system is going to do them justice. Right. So to have only 230 report means that the rest, you know, the 770 cases out of a thousand are dealing with it on their own and are going through the trauma on their own. What's awful is to hear these statistics that they're not going to get convicted anyway is kind of a deterrent for them to call it out in the first place, right? Right, right. Because they're thinking, well, nothing's going to happen anyway, so maybe it'll be worse if I do say something. Yeah, exactly. And to your point, of those 230 that are reported to police, 46 end up leading to arrest. And of those 46, nine cases get referred to prosecutors. So if you're going to take the chance of actually going to the police, there's such a small percentage of chance that you're going to actually have your case lead to something that the DA's office is going to pursue. Right. And then of the nine cases that get referred to prosecutors, five will likely lead to a conviction and less than that will be incarcerated. And that's sad because in, in my job, I've heard a lot of these stories and it's so sad that a lot of them, I understand why they wouldn't go out there and, and, and just accuse the person of the misconduct or what other or whatever horrible things that have happened to them. Um, although I do encourage them to say something and speak up, but again, it's their choice. I think so much of this is something that we have the ability as a society to address. Nadia and Maria, through our conversation, talked about using the right words, the hashtags, boys will be better, 
and holding the media accountable when they're reporting on these cases. Right, using the appropriate language to put the blame where it needs to be. Exactly. She mentioned also about how we scrutinize the victim instead of scrutinizing the perpetrator. It's it's interesting that we did this episode when it happened because around the same time, Radiolab did a segment on consent. And they talked about that it's not just the men and, and their biases. It's also women themselves. They feel the need to, I guess, please somebody else, not just in romantic relationships, but like they have this need like to take the responsibility on their own. And it's so there's this one case where this woman was in, in a situation where she felt uncomfortable, despite the fact that she's very vocal about feminism and things like this. She was in a situation where she was with a friend and the friend crossed the line and she didn't know what to do because even though she felt she was prepared for this and that, you know, this was something that she would know what, what she would do if she were ever in that situation when she actually was placed in that situation. She kind of didn't do what she thought she, she froze. would do. She froze. And which is normal as a, a normal trauma response, fight, flight or freeze. And what happened? After it happened... She didn't speak to him for a very long time, and she actually made her own podcast. <laughs> Even though it was something that she confronted years later, it's not something that was easy for her. So she didn't get the response that she was hoping for, no, the acknowledgement no. and the sincerity and the apology. Right, she did not get that. But I guess, was there any conversation around if she did receive a sincere apology, if that would have made a difference? It was It was an ongoing conversation. I don't know if it would have made a difference. Because it's not just him. We have to look at society as a whole. Yeah. And Maria and Nadia in our conversation also addressed the female price of male pleasure and how basically women's pleasure is subordinate to male pleasure and right. that our pleasure is inherent in creating and satisfying male pleasure. And right. So in a way that protagonist in the Radiolab episode you talked about spent all that time struggling with her guilt and her feelings of uncertainty and blamed herself. Right. Is part of a natural part of actually what our society inculcates in girls from a young age. I think it all speaks to the internalized sexism and racism that we all have been brought up to feel but not be aware of that's hidden. And so having these conversations is really important because it exposes what is uncomfortable and what's present and makes it possible to think differently and act differently. Right. So consent is a great segue to our next episode 26, our conversation with Tammy Cho, co-founder of Better Brave, a website that helps targets and allies find tools that address workplace harassment and workplace discrimination. To me, what was important about that conversation was the fact that there's such an intersection between workplace and employment, harassment and discrimination, and the gender pay gap, the gender wage gap. You know, that when people are something that already exists, mm -hmm. that exacerbates disparities, that it becomes even more difficult to right that wrong when there's workplace harassment or discrimination. Right. And to speak up for something that you might rightly deserve in terms of raises or promotions 
or accommodations at work that you're legally entitled to, that doing so could jeopardize your job and threaten it entirely. And so then it actually exacerbates the work, the gender pay gap even more. Right. So that's one of the things that was mentioned, because in society, women being assertive is looked either down upon or people feel threatened about. And then they feel, oh, it's not maybe I shouldn't maybe a woman who might otherwise speak up may may feel like maybe I shouldn't because it's not the right thing to do. One of the difficulties in Fortune 500 companies where we see that there are a lot more males than female CEOs. And it's there are certain qualities that CEOs are more likely to have. So like that display of dominance and this authoritative kind of way of behaving, it seems like CEOs are more likely to have that. And it's rarer in women. And therefore they value it more mm-hmm. and they reward it more. Right. So it's self-perpetuating. Right. Another area that I thought was very important to bring up is the fact that the gender pay gap is so essential for us to address poverty in this country. And it's so linked to rates of domestic violence and sexual assault that not being able to have economic justice for women is, or access to economic justice is a huge impediment for women to access safety and security and to leave their unhealthy or abusive relationships. It goes along the same way in in the workplace. There are other reasons why certain women may be in situations where they choose one job over the other. Over the other, a lot of times in the same job, it's it's it, women are treated differently and paid less than men. So I really hope that people can look at this and understand that it is a problem because I feel like a lot of people out there don't think that that it's a problem and they'll blame. Things like, oh, well, women are more likely to choose this job over the other job, and that's why this happens. Yeah, and I think it's also important when we're talking about inequity in the workplace and around pay that and its you know, subsequent manifestation of potentially employment harassment or discrimination, that we take into account the need for stronger protections for workers. So we talked about in this episode, the one fair wage movement for restaurant workers. Right. But collective bargaining is itself being weakened across the country. And not having protections for workers is a key towards corporations being able to do and continue to do and whatever they want right. and bring workers into a situation that may be coercive and continue to perpetuate imbalance in power. Right. I think that's also a problem with capitalism in itself that you're giving the power to corporations over the individual. I know mentioning the the restaurant thing, there are other countries in Europe, for example, that tip isn't something that's required because it's just it's not like over here a lot of restaurant workers they require that tip in order for them to survive. And it's something that's been perpetuated by the restaurant owners themselves. If the restaurant owners would just pay them a fair wage, there would be no need for them to depend on tips. And it's 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 very unfair to put it on the people instead of the corporations themselves, the restaurant owners in that case. But in general the same thing happens with with bigger corporations. So yeah. Yeah, but there's also certain industries that are predominantly male or predominantly female that have different levels of protection. So for example, childcare workers, right. they're predominantly female. Correct. 
restaurant workers, at least in the the wait staff, are predominantly female. female right. And they're not there's not the same protection to those groups as there are or potentially as there are and higher wages for parking lot attendants that are predominantly male. And no one would ever think, oh, for a parking lot attendant, I'm not going to tip them because you're dealing with your car, right? Right. And it's not like your car is more important than, than your child. Your child, right? right? But those that group belongs to unions too. Right. Whereas I, childcare workers don't and restaurant workers don't. And graduate students are struggling for that right across the country to various degrees. I'm trying to think of other examples where there are more women than there are men. Home attendants, I would say it's the same same situation. Although nurses, I think they're paid better. I don't know the statistics, but... Yeah, but the thing with nurses is that it's part of a sector that's in the care sector where it's seen as a feminine job. And so right. men are actually less likely to want to participate in those jobs, especially right. depending on how those jobs are advertised. Right. So if there are terms in those job descriptions that reference more or give more weight to the caretaking part versus the... Use of instruments and tools and skills in order exactly, to make sure. Right. Then men have been disinclined to want to apply and participate in those industries. Even though there's so many job openings, men aren't actually wanting to apply and learn those skills. Right. So that's another issue. So it's kind of like episode 24 with Mm -hmm. Professor James Wilkie, Mm -hmm. who talked about how masculinity impacts eco-friendly or green behavior in men. Right, right. right. So that there are certain perceptions of the level of masculinity that are attached to men, whether it's through your employment status or your vocation or consumer behaviors, um, like the kinds of drinks that you buy at a bar that attach to you that dissuade men who value those labels and the positive reinforcement they get from their male tribe from engaging in those behaviors or pursuing those professions. So I think it's part of how we raise children, how Mm -hmm. we have conversations as educators about these careers, showing children that we're teaching in the classroom that it's okay. And these are desirable jobs. These are honorable jobs and not casting them in the negative light that maybe their families or other environments cast them in that make them less likely to want to pursue. And it's something that comes from childhood, from very young people. Children get really affected by the way they're they're taught and their point of view is shaped from very young. Not related to gender, but I met this little girl, the little sister of a friend of mine, and she said something along the lines like, looking at me, which I'm not white for those of you since this is a radio, she looks at me and I'm lighter skinned and she says, I wish I was white like you. I want to be white. But this is a Hispanic girl? No, this is a, a little black girl. Oh. Right. The thing that broke my heart was why Why would she feel that beauty is white? Like that's... Well, what? Michael, we had this discussion right, back in many episodes. For example, right. when we talked with Dr. Tanya Leslie yes, yeah. about I, diversity and inclusion. I thought about that right away. And yeah. the experiment with the dolls. Right. That children of color when they were given the the test between choosing between black and white dolls, 
preferred they the preferred white the doll. They preferred the white dolls, right. Yeah. So This is many, many decades. And then Anderson Cooper repeated the experiment in recent years, and it was the same result. Right. From a very young age, we, we exposed children to boy toys, like trucks and, and balls and things like that. And for women, you have little easy bake ovens and, and little dolls to, I feel like, train them to become uh, what caretakers. We, caretakers, right. And so that actually sets us up for the roles that we inhabit as adults. Right. And how we communicate with each other, how we resolve conflict, how we engage in relationships. That brings us to episode 27 with council member Jennifer Gates, the head of the Dallas Domestic Violence Task Force. What I liked about that episode was learning about the different ways in which her city was bringing together city agencies such as the Dallas Police Department, the district attorney's office, judges, and nonprofit organizations within the community, and the University of Texas, all bringing them together as partners to collaborate on how to strengthen their responses to domestic violence. I think one of the most important things that they do is finding out statistics to be able to make decisions. I think knowing the problem is basically half of the battle of solving it. So by finding out these statistics and for them understanding things like um, what affects the shelter and, 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 and what to do about that, it's extremely important work, which I hope that continues. And now this is in Dallas. So I, I, I guess there are differences between Dallas and New York's laws. But this is something that I definitely appreciated to see what factors may affect domestic violence. Well, one of the things I wanted to bring up with you, which I didn't really get a chance to pursue to such an extent with Councilmember Gates, was when I was referencing the demographics of the clients that were in the annual report for 2016-2017. Okay. And I observed that the educational attainment of the clients that were being served, that 80% of them had a high school diploma or a GED or less than a high school diploma. So basically, they did not have a college education or above. And then the other 21% were comprised of 7% with associate's degrees, 11% with bachelor's degrees, and the remaining 3% with graduate degrees. I didn't want people who were listening to think that domestic violence only happens to those who are uneducated or poor. Right. But what I thought that this revealed was actually more about who feels comfortable to seek support through the system and right. what kind of pros and cons or whatever the calculus is that they're measuring about what they're willing to risk losing or getting from engaging with the system. Right. And perhaps people who are wealthier from wealthier families, those individuals have more to lose in terms of status, in terms of financial security, right. and they have different means of resolving those issues. Because I know from my, my friends and conversations that I've had amongst those who are either middle class or wealthier, right. that there's a very strong reluctance to go to the criminal justice system as a remedy. 
especially if their partners, if their abusive partners were professionals with degrees or licenses that were at risk. Right. If they had law degrees, medical degrees, any degree that if they had an order of protection against them or some criminal conviction could make them lose their ability to earn money and provide, that they weren't willing to risk that not necessarily for themselves or their children, but to also risk the retaliation that the abusive partner might take on them for making that happen. Right, Right. because in the episode, we focus more on, like, for example, one of the things that she mentioned was an abuser who was out of work. It seems like in that situation, they're more likely to be perpetrators if they are out of work. And I also pushed back on her to make sure that the language that was used in the annual report which made it appear causal was more correlated. Correlation. It was a trigger mm-hmm. that happens, but unemployment does not cause abuse. Unemployment is a trigger for abuse for someone with a pre-existing mindset right. of power and control. I'm glad that you were able to bring it up because while I don't have too much experience with people in domestic violence issues, cases where, where they do have money, it does seem like that that would definitely affect them. Yeah. And then just to reiterate, of the total client population that was being served that was reported in this annual report, 86% of them were either at or below the poverty level, which means the majority. Right. And and so it was very consistent that there's, at least in terms of people willing to access the system, the criminal justice system, and all of the services that are available to them, People um, it's people lower. who are lower income and mm-hmm. lower with lower education. Another thing I wanted to point out was how almost 30% of the people who are being abused are under the age of 18 and oh. how high that was for me and the importance of addressing abuse early on, early on so that it doesn't impact in a negative way the way abuse carries forward into their lives, into their adult relationships. Seeing as that I work with young people, it's something that I've seen also. So it's something that, yes, it definitely does have to be addressed early on and and by not just the parents, because sometimes they may be in abusive situations and they might not be able to handle it. So I think a lot of this may be reported by other professionals like therapists or teachers or counselors um, so that hopefully that does get addressed early. That's a good segue for us to turn to episode 28 with Paul Griffin, Mm -hmm. the legal director of Child Justice Inc., because the people that you just mentioned, those professionals, the therapists, the educators who we hope can address these generational traumas aren't necessarily equipped and trained to do so, according to Paul, and certainly from my own experience and the experience of the protective parents that I know. Starting with the judges who have, I think, a lot of the ultimate power to make certain decisions. He was talking about how they have so many biases towards maybe a female who appears maybe aggressive or something like that, and how without the proper training, they may act on these biases and not focus on what statistics show, right? That a woman is very unlikely to, to, to be lying, but it's something that decisions are made a lot just on what they think or what they experience anecdotally. Yeah. And when you're a victim of abuse, sexual assault, rape, child abuse, whatever, whatever you're experiencing is going to cause trauma. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to seek redress 
through the system in some way, through the courts, through the police, through law enforcement, through schools, through child welfare. Right. And people aren't believing you. It's only natural that your trauma is going to be, you're going to be re-victimized by not being believed. And that those trauma symptoms are going to come out and be misinterpreted by people who don't understand trauma. Right. So it's so incredibly important to get that training for those who... Who are making who are making those decisions. So one of the things that I thought was very timely in my conversation with Paul was how House Congressional Resolution seventy two mm-hmm. was just passed around the same time that I was conducting my interview with Paul. And this is a resolution that ensures that children are protected in custody disputes and that child safety is a higher priority above all else. And Paul's tagline around his experience working in the court system with protective parents is that it's, quote unquote, worse to accuse than to abuse. Right. So this House Congressional Resolution 72 pushes state courts to consider child safety above all else in order to prevent that from happening, in order not to have courts retaliate on survivors who are reporting abuse of themselves or of their children to be disbelieved and to elevate abuser parenting rights over child safety. That's very important because I know that we talked in the past about how in a lot of court cases, the they're looking to see seek justice for the parents and what's more convenient to the father or the mother, whichever the case is, as opposed to focusing on what the child needs and what the to, to make sure that you're preventing as little abuse and damage to the child. It's more important to focus on that. Yeah, and this was a great victory for many of the advocates who have been working on this issue for the past decade, many of whom were on this show as guests. Right. So Joan Meyer from DV Leap was involved in getting that resolution passed. Kathleen Russell from the Center for Judicial Excellence was involved. We haven't spoken with the California Protective Parents Association, but they're definitely an ally and they were involved. The Leadership Council is involved and Nancy Erickson and Barry Goldstein were part of the Leadership Council. Wow. Good group of people that you have. Really pleased that that's going to be hopefully the first step of many to move us forward towards greater accountability and hopefully education around what it means to really put survivors' safety first. I hope that that we continue to do that and just have us all informed. All right. Well, thank you for joining today, Michael. And I look thank forward you. to talking with you at our next Engendered Reflections. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Terry. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. CanDoIt helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. CanDoIt. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.